Shalom, salam, hello, and welcome to Tour Guide Confidential, your guided backstage tour of the travel industry. My name is Dr. Eyal Duchovny, and I'm coming to you from my home in Haifa, Israel. My friends call me Eyal, or as I like to tell my guests when I'm guiding, especially those from the United States, my name is a lot like the southern Hey Y'all without the H. And if that's too hard for you, you can just call me Dr. D. To be honest with you, I feel like this podcast is a great many years in the making. Since as long as I can remember, I've been interested in learning about other cultures and love traveling and experiencing new places. To date, I have visited 60 countries and have even had the good fortune of living for extended periods in six of them. Considering all this, I guess it is not really that surprising that I chose to study anthropology and got a PhD in the field from the University of Georgia. My fieldwork was in India and focused on environmental issues, but more on that at some future time. After graduating from the PhD program about a decade ago, I had a really amazing opportunity to work in study abroad, and I directed a program in India for three semesters. What I especially loved about this program was that the students lived with host families, and we took several educational tours around the country. In 2013, I moved back to Israel, where I'm originally from, and became interested in guiding as a full-time profession. Here's a fun fact for you. In Israel, tour guides are known as more derech, which can be roughly translated as something like the road teachers, but implies something quasi-mystical or Taoist, kind of like the teachers of the way, which, if I'm being honest with you, is frankly a lot to live up to. Because Israel is sacred to the three monotheistic religions and has been a magnet for pilgrims for literally millennia, tourism and tour guides have a long and venerable history and sometimes a complicated history in this corner of the world. This podcast is my attempt to showcase the tour guiding profession, and in particular, my truly remarkable and multi-talented colleagues and all that they do, a lot of it behind the scenes. I see guiding as a passion and a calling that brings all of my disparate interests, such as culture, history, geography, languages, etc., all into one place, as an anthropologist by training, I really appreciate how holistic this field is, and I see my goal as that of a bridge or a cultural broker for my guests. So, what are my goals with this podcast, with Tour Guide Confidential? First of all, I want to showcase the tour guiding profession. Secondly, to share best practices among tour guides. It's an opportunity for all of us to really learn from each other. Third, to foster professionalism among tour guides, and then to provide exposure for top-tier guides. Also, I want to afford a behind-the-scenes look at the tourism industry for tourists who might be interested in understanding what goes on behind the scenes when they're on tour. I also want to serve as a forum for in-depth discussions of this endlessly fascinating profession in all of its aspects. Lastly, but definitely not least. Let's have fun and laugh a little. After all, 
As anyone who has ever had the good fortune of taking a tour with a master tour guide can tell you, guides tell the best stories. All right, what do we have today? I sat down a couple of weeks ago with my friend and co-conspirator Moria Gabsi to discuss something that is close to both of our hearts, ethnographic or cultural tourism. As I mentioned in the interview, Moria and I ran into each other by chance about eight months ago and got to talking about how the grind was getting us down and our desire to do something else, to do something more. As it turns out, we both see tourism as a way to bring people together rather than a way to bring people to places. In this episode, we talk about how people often misperceive Israel and are completely unaware of its surprising cultural diversity. From the outside looking in to the casual observer, it may seem like the story here is a clear-cut case of Jews versus Arabs. But this is just a caricature and an oversimplification of the cultural mosaic that exists here, and for that matter, in the wider Middle East. Aside from the fact that in this region there are Jews, Arabs, Druze, Baha'i, Christians, Alawites, Bedouin, Gypsies, Yazidis, Turks, Parsis, Greeks, etc., within every one of these different groups, there are also various subgroups and ethnicities. Sadly, when tourists visit Israel, and only go to archaeological and religious sites, they miss out on this endlessly fascinating and intricate tapestry. Even worse, you miss out on the daily coexistence that is also part of the story here, even if it doesn't make it to the headlines of the nightly news. Having said that, I realize that aside from the great promise of ethnographic tourism, it has its pitfalls as well not least of which is what we call in anthropology the ethnographic present, or the freezing of a cultural group in a particular moment in time and deeming that as what is traditional and unchanging while we lament the disappearing native. Personally, while I can see the benefits of tourism and development, the economic power disparities between the tourists and the local community worry me and I am concerned about the impacts it may have on the local communities and their culture. Last but not least, since our skies are currently closed and the coronavirus has completely and utterly wiped out our tourism industry for the time being, we try to wrap our heads around this crisis and imagine what tourism might look like when the dust finally settles. I hope you like this first episode and will consider subscribing to this podcast at my website, tourguideconfidential.com, one word, tourguideconfidential, or on any place that you listen to podcasts such as iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Of course, since I'm just starting on this journey, I'm very interested in your comments and suggestions, and this too can be done on the website or on the show's Facebook page. You guessed it. Tour Guide Confidential. Three words. Tour Guide Confidential. I look forward to hearing from you, and we'll be back to wrap things up on the other side of this interview. Welcome to Tour Guide Confidential. I am here today with Moria Gabsi, who is a veteran tour guide, 
Uh, Maria and I have actually worked together on several projects in the past. And a few months ago, we met by chance, if there is such a thing. And we sat down and we realized that we both share a very common interest in a type of tourism, which is not this kind of mass tourism, more a tourism which is a cultural tourism or an ethnographic tourism. I have a background in anthropology, so this is really my first love and something that I would really like to do in tourism. And you also have a background in psychology and interest in cultures and in traditional crafts and all those kinds of things. And so uh, I wanted to invite you here to have a talk together to discuss this issue as well as guiding in, in general. And also, I think this is a great opportunity to promote your new website. Uh, you have a beautiful website called Foot for Thought, which uh, I'm going to put in afterwards in the notes. So anybody who wants to see the website will be able to link to it in the notes. But I wanted to also, you know, give you a shout out for the great work that you've done on your website and um, just to welcome you here today. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's actually quite exciting to be here and it's something that I've been thinking of for some time now and I'm just happy to find out that we both uh, share a common passion for the love of people, for the love of culture, of nations mm -hmm. and for what, what, what really stands out the most for me here in Israel above history, archaeology, it's Israel nowadays and the amazing diversity that actually we are living among this cultural mosaic of a country, right? I mean, yes. there's just so many different cultures. Uh, oftentimes when people look at it from the outside, they see black and white, you know, like just, you know, there's the Arab-Israeli conflict, everything's black and white. But in reality, as I know, as you know, yes. as we experience by living here, there's just so many cultures. There's such a rich diversity of cultures in Israel. And um, I think it's this is a great opportunity today to think about that and to talk about it with respect to tourism, mm -hmm. because while tourism sometimes reflects that, I don't think we're always doing a very good job in really sharing and reflecting the different cultures here. Mm -hmm. So this is something I really want to talk to you about, with all the kind of difficulties and, and reservations that I right. also have regarding that kind of tourism. Right. And I think that's, that's the biggest uh, challenge that Israel today has, and that's actually also the biggest gift that Israel has today, because if each person living here today thinks, oh, this is my land, that's my story, then each is stuck in his own narrative. But really, mm -hmm. the place here is about sharing the narrative and about making sense of it all together. Like I said, a, a human mosaic, yeah. cultural one. So mm -hmm. that's really... Okay, so what I always do with my guests is I start always, this, this is a tradition here, <laughs> a tradition here at the... Tour Guide Confidential, what I always start with is I really would like to hear a little bit about your background. Mm -hmm. I do this primarily because I have found that tour guides have fascinating backgrounds. Most tour guides that I've talked to have done a lot of interesting things in their life, and their life has not always gone in like a straight line. They've, they've tried other things before they ended up being tour guides. So I'd like to hear a little bit about your background, your upbringing, and how you got into guiding. So if you could share that with mm -hmm. us. That's a very good question. I'll say that I grew up in a Jewish Sephardic house. Sephardic means uh, Jewish communities that comes from mostly North and African countries. In my case, Tunisian Sephardic family. 
um, from both sides, my mom's side and my dad's side. And uh, a lot of it comes up with warmth and chicken farms and many, 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 many grandkids that running around the house. And you see three, five generations of families living under one shelter. So that's something that just comes with my DNA. And for me, that's life. That's something that I'm very much familiar with. And uh, as we grew up, I grew up in Afula. My mom's side is from the south, a city called Be'er Sheva. That's where I got this image of, of life and family from. Um, in Afula, I didn't really find like something interest. There was like an inner contradiction within me, knowing that I'm in the heart of this amazing valley called Jezreel Valley. But I don't really feel it in the in the city life. I felt like there's nothing really interesting there for me. Uh, and one thing led to the other. When I was about 16, 17, 18, my dad just left the army. And we went to we went abroad on a summer camp. Jewish summer camp in Nyack, New York, upstate New York. And that was for me a life-changing experience. First of all, because we did it three times with a year gap in between. And secondly... Because for the first time, I actually realized that being a Jew doesn't necessarily mean being Israeli. And it doesn't necessarily mean being a Sephardic Jew. And Judaism has many, 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 many faces. And I was quite shocked to see the American Jewish society. I was really fascinated by these camps, summer camps, themed a big lake. Back then, it seemed like a huge lake. Today, I know it's just a small one. And, and kids running around and this narrative of Israel as the place for the Jewish nation never came about for me as something that you don't take for granted. And this experience left a very, very strong impression within me, it's like a mark. And that took me to do another year when I finished the Israeli army, the IDF, Israeli Defense Force, I actually went abroad to Canada. And then I spent a year in Newfoundland, Canada. And that was another life-changing experience. Then for the first time, I felt, what does it mean to be a Jew living outside of Israel? And I realized that Jewish life are very, very, very rich. A. B. Israel is in the heart of every living Jew living around the world. And it doesn't matter whether for them it's winter or spring or summer. They would pray for summer. They would pray for for the, for the wind or for the for the rain to come, even if for them it's the last thing that they need in their own country, uh, whether they're from South Africa, East Canada, or the U.S. or somewhere in Europe. And Abraham Infeld talks about this, right? Exactly. This is one of the things that he mentions. Yeah. 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 So that that's something that really stood, that really really stood with me uh, since, and uh, seeing the love and the passion that people have for this country came about for me as something that I, 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 I it kind of connected the dots for me growing up where I did so in, seeing only such a small part of this huge spectrum and then seeing the US American Jews and then living and serving the Jewish Canadian congregation in St. John's Newfoundland is quite an amazing thing for me and one event that stood up above others while I was in St. John's was that once I was just going down the biology department in Memorial University somewhere at about 9 p.m. in the evening. I was there for some kind of a lecture. And all of a sudden, there was a huge poster in, in front of my face at the, the door into one of the biology department doctor's office. And on this poster, I saw an image of Israeli soldiers aiming huge guns and a tank 
in front of infants, like kids. And this image caught me. It was very, very devastating for me, this realization that I'm far away from my country. It's almost 9 p.m. in the evening. I'm in the biology department. Next to me, you have frogs and what's not. <laughs> and that's what I see. Like, that's what stands in the doorway of a doctor. And at that moment, there were so many thoughts running in my mind. I said, what, what should I do? I need to fix it. I need to talk to this doctor. I need to do, I need to do something. That's not the big picture. I, I've been to the army. I was, I was an educator in the Israeli army. I know how much education and value. What, what do you mean you were an educator? What was your, what was your position in the army? What were you doing? I was, I was what's called Moshakit Chinuch. I was an educator. I was in charge of the education of the soldiers. When they come to the army, some of them don't have their 12 years of education. So the Israeli army is kind of an opportunity, like a last chance to finish all sorts of assignments that you haven't done. Some uh, American or Russian Jews that comes from abroad, they come to Israel and... You know, they're not Jewish enough. In other words, they need to kind of do some sort of courses and certifications to prove their Jewish identity. So in the army, we would track those soldiers and enable them to do uh, what's called in Hebrew, giyu. maybe you can say giyu. Conversion. Yeah, conversion. Yeah. And we'll teach them all sorts of things. I would also take them around the country and show them the country. Every Sunday we had this uh, tradition that you go and you show the soldiers. So really the Israeli army, in my eyes, was all about values and teaching and kind of like fixing the line so everyone at the end of those three years would come out at the other end as a better person, education-wise, values-wise. And to see this poster for me, showing this very, very one-sided image, was devastating. So I stood in front of this door and I wanted to say something and I wanted to rip it off mm -hmm. and my heart was making very fast pulls and I'm, thousands of thoughts went through my mind and all of a sudden the door opens mm -hmm. I was shocked and I had so much to say but I had nothing to say and then this old gentleman looked at me he had a beard you can see he's a Palestinian person Muslim I saw in his doorway, it says Ahmed something. Uh -huh. Then I knew this guy's not from Canada, Newfoundland. He's from abroad. Uh -huh. And when he saw my face, he said, Hello, young lady, in a thick Arabic accent. Where are you from? And the conversation went for very, very, very few seconds. He said, Are you from Palestine? And at that moment, I couldn't say yes. I couldn't say no. Because uh -huh. I'm not from Palestine. God knows I'm from Israel. This is this is in my blood. I'm Israeli. And I was so afraid that if I'm going to say, no, I'm from Israel, who are you to put this poster? Who are you to use your status as a professor to do a propaganda against my country so many, 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 many miles away from home? I was afraid he's going to do something because in the place where I grew up, doing something like that is kind of crossing the limits. Mm -hmm. So I, I said nothing. I just said, thank you. And I ran away. I just ran away the whole way until I made it out back to my house. And that night I couldn't sleep. And the next Shabbat, which is uh, the weekend for the Jews, I, I, I gave a lecture in front of the congregation telling them about what I met and how, how um, moving that was for me for the first time to meet anti-Semitism or something against anti-Israeli 
propaganda. And that, that story stuck or stayed with me for some time because at that moment I realized how can a young student feel so intimidated by the profession of the professor that he is manipulated to whatever he wants to do with your grades and how such event can limit you and that for me that was the root of bds in in, in, in campuses when was this how long ago was it? that was in 2015 in 2016 oh so just a few years ago actually, yeah just five years ago no no actually you're right that was in 2012 so that was mm-hmm. in 2012 now i realize i already finished my certified tour guiding in 2015 so it couldn't be that and that yeah, is, that was a, yeah. What's interesting about this, and I wasn't planning really to go in this direction, but since you bring up the story, in your family's roots are in the Arab and Muslim world. And so how does that impact on you, you know, and your identification with, you know, this region? Like you said, it's in your DNA, you're Israeli and everything. You are an Israeli, but you're also... Like you said, Tunisian, mm-hmm. right? And and your family is from. If you told, if I remember correctly, you told me you're from Jerba, right? Jerba has had a Jewish community for thousands of years. Not still has a Jewish community, right? Right. And so, how does that you know come together? Um, your identity, both as Israeli and Tunisian, with you know what's going on here in terms of the conflict, you know, because you're you're coming at it from a, a different place where your family was also dispossessed. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, forced to leave their home uh, in some sense, right? Uh, I think something like 850,000 Jews from the Arab world were lost their homes and dispossessed and came to Israel within the first couple, mm-hmm. the first decade of the country. So how does that play into that whole dynamic where you're here in Canada with this Arab and you're Israeli, but you're also from, you know, your, your roots are in the Arab world. Mm-hmm. You can't deny that you know your your roots and and some elements of your own upbringing and culture must you know reflect that. So how does that all come together for you, or does it? Yeah, that's a great question because really for me that was the beginning of my self discovery journey. I did not know much about my Tunisian roots till then. That was just how I grew up. Mm-hmm. I did not know much until then about what it feels to be a student under those laws, under those norms of respect your professor and what professor can do. I did not realize and I did not know much back then about the difference between Palestine and Israel. That question itself really kind of made a huge spin to my life because I said, I'm going to do homework now and I'm going to go and I'm going to make sure that I really, really, really know next time someone asks me if I'm from Palestine, I know exactly what I answer when I say yes or when I say no. And based on those homeworks that I took, that uh, took me to a place in which I've learned about the Tunisian congregation and how my family came already after the Israeli independence war in 1949, how they came by ship. Mm-hmm. And how long was their journey and how much they had to stop in France and Cyprus and what's not just to make it to the promised land. What was that for them? I, I never knew that beforehand. And after this, I, I took the time to learn more about the 
the conflict between the Jews and the Arabs, I didn't know much about it. I was very young. I was 21 and a half. I only knew about the Palestinians from what I saw in the army, and I saw some difficult things in the army. If you want, I'll say a few words about it. It's up to you. Um, So that really took me on a very wide journey, and that was one of the reasons that I really decided to eventually go and do this tour guiding course because I really wanted to know what is Palestine and what is Israel. Mm -hmm. And today, when I meet people, I tell them, this is Palestine, this is Israel, welcome. Now let's, let's break it, let's understand, let's unfold it. But coming from where I am as a Tunisian kind of Arab Israeli background, living in such a dynamic environment of sometimes uh, Jews from uh, North America, sometimes European Jews, even within Israel, I feel like a mediator between worlds because I can really, really relate to the Arab world. I understand some of the words, I understand their norms. I have um, some, some, some high respect, if you can say high respect, I have deep respect to them, but I'm also fascinated by the Jewish American or Canadian or what we call Ashkenaz Jewish world, mm-hmm. uh, which goes to Eastern European Jewish background, which is a whole different story. So today I can understand both and I can do this bridging between worlds. Mm-hmm. Which is something I think we're going to talk more about with respect mm-hmm. to you know, ethnographic or cultural tourism. But I think... This is probably a good point to ask this question. I was going to ask it a little bit later, but I, I, I have the sense that, you know, Sephardi Jews in Israel, Jews, like I said, from North Africa or Middle East, Sephardi Jews, when they moved from their countries of origin to Israel, in many ways it was kind of like a, a double loss for them, right? They lost their homes. In many cases, they were forced out. It wasn't... I mean, many Jews came here because there was a country and they wanted to be here. But in many cases, Jews from the Arab world had no choice. Mm -hmm. The local Arab communities forced them out. Like, for example, you know, in the case of the Farhud in in Iraq, you know, there were pogroms in other places as well. And there were also legislation which made it very difficult for Jews from those countries to continue living in those places as second-class or third-class citizens. So they lost their homes place which they had been in for thousands of years in many cases, Jewish communities like Jeroboam, thousands of years. At the same time, when they came to Israel, they lost their culture because the normative culture in Israel was was Ashkenazi, was, you know, Western, right? All these things, not an Oriental, it was a Western, not an Eastern culture. So they lost twice. They lost their homes and their culture. And... Also, the respect for the elders. Right, respect, you know. All the tribehood that sits yeah. at the center, at the core of this right. so, community. So one, one of the things I wanted to ask you later, but I'll ask you now, I mean, do you think that that kind of background and legacy influenced you in your life to be interested in, in traditions, in cultures, in, like I said earlier, in, in handicrafts, like in, in trying to almost to like, gain back, to regain what was lost in your parents' and generation you know, because of this kind of, it wasn't a forced assimilation in Israel, but it was close to being a forced assimilation, right? 
there was really a sense early on in the state of Israel uh, by the Ashkenazi elite that they need to educate the Sephardim to bring them up to speed to be at the same you know, level. And I use that in quotation marks. What do you think about that and, and how it affects you and, and your interests? Yeah. <clears throat> you know, as you say it now, I really feel sadness in me. Like I'm about to cry because that, that, that's, that's really, that, that's what sits at the core of my passion. It comes from a place of sadness. I mean, feeling like time is running fast. And today people lost respect for the most simplest things. Just sitting together uh, without staring at the phone, without rushing anywhere. Um, and there's something sacred that's just kind of missing in our day-to-day life. And when I have the chance and the opportunity to sit with my grandma till today she's alive, and my grandpa, and time is running all the time, I just see what, what a crazy change they've gone through in their 80, 90 years of living here. And it shrinks me because I, I kind of realize if, if we won't do something, and now there would be no one to, to quote from there would be no one to relate to and this deep connection took me to the understanding that my own grandma on my dad's side was in charge of a huge factory for producing uh, wool mm. of, of, of painting the wool of, of making it into uh, strings and maybe you can explain it better in your words in English but I didn't know any of it and today I have a very strong passion for working with felting and wool and and, and just realizing the whole procedure from the ship down to the wall and this beautiful painting and whatever you can do with it. And I like to do it echo, echo printing, because that gives respect. And if you look archaeology-wise, the things that stays for thousands of years are not things that you buy off from a store. They're actually the things that you exploit or you, you, you extract off from animals like snails and and, and pomegranates and what's not. So for me, out of a place of, of feeling sadness and shrinking when you ask those questions, it became like a life mission to give back life to life that extinct in front of our eyes. Mm-hmm. And willing to bridge between a modern world that's super advanced and has many, many, many advantages, yet super disadvantaged super not present and uh, part of my therapy that's something i also want to ask you about yeah. you know how, how how do you incorporate your therapy tell, tell us a little bit about your education that's something we haven't discussed yet how did you know what have you studied i know you you're studying psychotherapy yeah what else are, what's your background educational wise so i i when i came back from st john's newfoundland i i i went as three times. First, this was my year there, and then two years later, and another two, I, I came back three or four times, because I have, like, great friends there till today, and, and family and whatnot. So after the first year I came back, I realized that's what I want to do. I want to do anthropology. I want to understand these tribes. I want to understand the, the commonality between the individual development, the social bubble that mm-hmm. kind of takes us through life and becomes our obvious life, like how I grew up, that was for me the whole world. And then the anthropology aspect. And what, what I like the most about anthropology is the, the fact that it can compare 
between different communities, the same phenomena, and then you understand something very fast. So that was my, um, th- that was my beginning. Uh, later on, I decided that I really want to take this understanding and to make it more professional and show people Israel and combine all these understanding, understandings. And later on, I did psychotherapy, and my focus on psychotherapy was really about the connection between the Western world and the Eastern world. And I, I've studied something a little bit more holistic, and the essence and the expertise was all about being able to presence. So it's called presence therapy, and the whole um, course took place in nature. So we would sit on the ground, We'll start off with meditation, kind of be tuned with what's happening inwardly, externally, and then the discussion will start. So for me today, when I guide people through the country, I like and I feel obligated to make the connection between those, you know, I call it the trinity, the holy trinity between what's happening the outside and the inside and what's happening with the people we meet and how we meet them, what, what kind of a mindset we bring to them and what do they teach us about ourselves? basically that's where the word comes from food for thought by walking the land you get something to think about something to digest something to reflect upon to contemplate upon and then that takes you a passage through life so for me that that's that's very important so how do you see your role as a tour guide what what do you think of yourself as your, your your specific role, and how does it translate into your guiding style? Like how does that impact the way you guide? Yeah, so I see myself as a bridge, like as a world's bridge maker. I understand both worlds, and for me, it's very important to mediate the passenger, like whoever's traveling with me, to the experience that he both feels in the outside and in the inside. As such, I feel very much obligated to bring companion, compassion, sorry, to bring compassion to every person we meet. I feel obligated to use the word negative and to make it um, very clear that when a person talks to us, he's he's bringing his story and you have your story and together we want to unfold this whole thing that's called history so when i show people around i show them that this place is a mosaic made of many 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 little histories that together make this story into a whole so in in my in my work i see it as kind of like an art in which you embroider the different stories into one fine beautiful image um yeah that, that connects the dots and, and makes sense of it all what is the main kind of tourism that you've been focused on over the years? I mean, uh, what would you say? Is it educational tourism? Is it, you know, uh, pilgrims? What kind of tourism would you say that you primarily been focused on? Yeah, so I, I initiated my work as a guide through a wonderful, wonderful project that we both share, by the way, called Birthright. Okay. Uh, and that's an educational uh, huge educational. Uh, How many birthrights have you done? I think over thirty. Wow, it's amazing. Yeah, because again, that was very important for me to send out mm-hmm. those children back to school, knowing who they are, knowing what their roots, and knowing what's the difference between Israel and Palestine, and realizing it's the same place and it's about narratives. 
So tell tell the listener a little bit about what Birthright is, you know, in case they're not familiar with the program, and um, you know your experience with it. So for me, uh, Birthright is 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 uh, one of the closest projects, educational projects that that came about to my life. It's a project that brings Jewish young students uh, from in the range between eighteen and today till. 32. 32. Back then it was up to 25, 27. Mm-hmm. Uh, to come to Israel, sometimes for the first time, sometimes not as a first comers, and to experience Israel almost for free for 10 days. And within those 10 days, to see the most beautiful sights that Israel has to offer, to meet controversial people, to meet people that make them think, to evoke their mind, and to give them the space, the platform, to build their own identity, to make, to, maybe you can help me with that as well, to, yeah, to shape their understanding about what are their Jewish roots, who they are, what's important for them down the road as young people that are going to make decisions upon their life, career-wise, family-wise, geographical-wise, where would they stay, values-wise, where that meet them and um yeah, i think all of the things you just mentioned and you know the way i see it when i guide uh birthright is basically i want them to become engaged with their judaism uh you know a specific type of judaism and not necessarily with israel though it would be nice if they had a relationship with israel but i want them to go back to the united states and to be somehow more engaged with their judaism than they were before they came to Israel. So in some ways, for me, as much as I love Israel and I've chosen to make this place the center of my life, for me, Israel in some ways is a backdrop. It's mm-hmm. like in scenery in a play. We, you know, they're here in Israel and they're seeing all of these things which connect them to our Jewish past, but it's less important than the internal inward journey that they're, that they're going on. And the scenery just helps them to focus on that journey. And so when they go back, my hope is that they'll be involved in some way in Jewish life, whatever that means for them. And there's, you know, you can find a whole gradient from very simple to very complicated, and everyone has to find their own path in that. But birthright for me is kind of a, is like a tool to try to accomplish that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And to see those students, how they come, what they go through and the way they go back home. I, I, I can honestly say that I many times experience this as a life-changing event for them because when they go back home and they go and they sit with their grandma and they ask their grandma, Grandma, what are the values that stands for you the most? How did you meet grandpa? Why did you choose to live here and not there? Tell me more about who you were as a young lady back in World War One and World War Two. Those things for me gives back life to the elders. Again, it goes back to respect. It goes back to tribehood. It goes back to circles of belonging. And I think it doesn't really matter where you live, you're right in that sense. It matters if you feel a sense of belonging in this world. I'll take it even a little bit further. It doesn't even matter for me whether you're a Jew, an Arab, a Christian, a Muslim. Mm-hmm. I do it also with another project called Passages. We'll mm-hmm. talk about it later. 
It's about feeling sense of belonging in this world. So tell us about Passages now. I think this is a good place to do it. Yeah, so Passages is, is, is a wonderful project that the way I see it stem out for the, from those values that Birthright put as a standards. And it, it takes Israel, uses it as a, a field, a, a you know, game, game field, a place mm-hmm. to, to play, um, to try out new things, to meet controversial people and enable those students to meet this fast um, mass diversity of people and at the end of those 10 days to start and uh, look inward and uh, contemplate and for me to strengthen their uh, circles of identity and circles of belonging and I think today in the 21st century in which we, we live this is one of the most important things that enable a person to, to feel a sense of fortitude, a, 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 to feel a sense of, of, of roots. Um, this world today is changing so fast, so dynamic. Sense of belonging, sense of faith, and sense of identity, for me, are the things that enable you to be rooted while constant changing is happening around you. I think what you're saying also is, you know, that like birthright, which uses Israel or, you know, employs Israel as this kind of background to connect to Jewish identity, Passages does that with their Christian identity. Mm-hmm. They talk about, you know, uh, connecting to the Jewish roots of Christianity, but it's also about strengthening their faith, right? And I think that's wonderful, and, and I'm, I participate in both of these mm-hmm. programs, but... I, I, I think there's a couple of things that we need to also put on the table mm-hmm. and to discuss about these. Uh, one is there's been a lot of criticism of birthright that it doesn't really incorporate uh, other narratives, right. for example, Arab narratives in Israel. And I think that they're making an effort in, in recent years to try to bring in some Arab voices that um, will discuss issues such as the conflict or what it feels like, what it is like to be a minority within Israel, you know, an, an Arab minority in a Jewish state. So I think that there's an effort on some level. There's, it's kind of been like a, a dance, you know, kind of two steps forward, one step back. Right. I don't think that, you know, they found the right balance yet. And maybe we should talk about that. I don't know. But there, I think that there is like a realization and an effort. And I think that's something that should be uh, applauded. Right, it's a good thing that they're doing that. Uh, Passages has people who you know present the Palestinian narrative, mm-hmm. right? Uh, they don't shy away from it, and that's a good thing. My problem with both of these, on some level, I mean, there's the criticism, there's the practical criticism, which is you're getting a free trip, right? And you know, you're getting a free trip. You shouldn't complain too much about what you're getting. There's that. So I'm not saying that that's exactly right or true, mm-hmm. but we can talk about that. There's that aspect. But the thing that worries me more is that, you know, there's this idea that tourism is, is kind of a, what we call it in anthropology, a simulacrum. Mm-hmm. A simulacrum is like a, a, almost like a, a mirror of reality. Like when you go in tourism, you're not necessarily seeing the real place. You're seeing the tourist place of the real place, mm-hmm. right? There's kind of a, a mirror of the reality. And that in many ways, tourism is 
a way to like tourism is kind of a it's a playground of the western imaginary right and i think it's important for us to think about this and to hash this out because we're interested in doing cultural tourism to what extent is tourism just perpetuating western ideas about a place like they show up at a place i mean for me it's like have you ever seen the show um is the TV show, um, which is um, what's the Amazing Race. Here it's called Amerots la Million. Yes. Right? I Where was they, afraid you're going to ask me because I don't have a TV. I said, oh, you're, you're, you're nothing you can say yes to, but this one I know. You heard about it. People <laughs> go around the world yeah, yeah. and they do these competitions. They race and every leg, you know, one team is removed and there's all this. And every time they go to different places, they do these little like challenges, right? Right. And so this is a super popular show. I think in the U.S. they've had like 21, 22 seasons. Here in Israel, also a very popular show. Right. right. But it, it bothers me. That show really upsets me because it means that the whole world is just a playground for Westerners who don't really spend any time getting to know the culture, the place, the people. They're just through a country in, in two days, rushing through. They they do they eat a local That's meal. Horrible. They, 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 they eat a local meal, and because they've eaten a local meal, now they've you know experienced wherever they have been. You know they they just experience it at that moment. You know, or for example, another example in the old city, you have people. They have this place where you can put on clothes from biblical time, mm-hmm. right? And so you can dress up like Abraham and Sarah. From biblical time, like King David or something like that. And while that's cute, right? Everyone likes this little memento of a picture. They took it in the old city. It makes me wonder also a little bit. It's like, you know, this is the Western imagining. What They come to Israel, and what they're looking for is what happened here 3,000 years ago and not what's happening today, right? And they dress themselves up in a way. They're like, this is all a big, like, not what they can experience from, what they can make it be for them. Right, they pay some money and they get themselves as a biblical figure. Mm-hmm. An experience. It, it's a. It's not even an experience. It's like a, it's a show. It's a show of some sort. It's like this kind of show where they, um, you know, they're 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 living this kind of simulacrum. This kind of you know, it's a. On the one hand, it's like it's like a reflection of a reality. On the other hand, it's like a hyper reality, right? Because mm-hmm. they're dressed up like. Mm-hmm. From from thousands of years ago, and so I don't know. Is this? It feels sometimes like a little bit like a modern colonialism, right? You think about like you know the Amazing Race. It's like a type of modern colonialism in a sense, you know. And you you spend your money and you get this product. What's the product? Biblical experience. What do you think about all? I mean, I, I spoke on and on there, but it's something that I've been thinking a lot about. Yeah, I can and see. I, and I would love to to hear your 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 thoughts on that, especially since both of us are really interested in this kind of cultural tourism. And I'm afraid that it will be colonialist in some way. You know, there, there's the elements there. Yeah. First of all, again, when you when you raise those issues, I feel I I feel a lot. You know, I come from this. One of you also as a therapist, I, I, I'm always, when I answer, I, I, first of all, I ask my body, what's going on? What's happening? Where is it? And I feel sadness in my heart. Like, that's why I don't really have a TV, because I feel for the sense of catching your mind for a second. They sell you anything they want, 
and they use anything on the way for those five seconds of fame. So first of all, that, that's for me something that I, 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 I pretty much go against it. In terms of tourism that's based on what you just uh, presented, I totally agree with you. Having said that, I understand that people want to feel the experience and they want to do it for their kids so they can go on the camel, the poor camel, <laughs> poor right? Camels, the poor yeah. camel, the very poor camel. Uh, and then they can have the image of Judean desert in the background with a nice scarf. And here you go. That's Israel for you. And that's the image that goes on and on. Again, for me, it took me a few years to understand that those come were poor. It took me a few years to understand the damage that it does for the Bedouin culture around the Bedouin. Yes. The Bedouin culture. It took me a few times to go back to the same site again and again and again and, and meet a Bedouin local woman crying out to me, telling me how much she, she's suffering from this social uh, culture in which she's stuck in. Mm-hmm. Uh, having to share a husband with five different you know, women and, and having to work here and, and leaving this gap so, between her life and the image that she's selling while she's giving the pita. Mm-hmm. None of the people coming to experience this place have never spoken to that lady because she won't speak to them even in English. So she's like a clear person. You don't and, see them. And you wouldn't want, as someone who's doing tourism, to bring them to a person who's going to make them you know, sad, God forbid, right? They want to meet the real life. It's yeah, no, they life. don't. They don't want that. They want. They want some kind of you know, uh, juice. Yeah, they want some kind of packaged, Hollywoodized, Orientalized image of the desert and the desert life and their simple life in their tents. You know, um, it's a problem. I mean, you, for example, I know guide in a village here, uh, not far from Haifa, called Jisser Azarka, mm-hmm. right? Um, I don't know if Jisser is the poorest village in Israel, but it's certainly one of the poorest villages in Israel, right? right. Would you agree yeah. to that? It's one of the poorest villages. In. Now, tourism in Israel, and it, it, and in general, living in Israel is extremely expensive. This is one of the most expensive countries that you could visit right. in terms of tourism. And you have guests who are staying in typically in four-star hotels, mm-hmm. sometimes in five-star hotels even, they're spending hundreds and hundreds of dollars to stay in these hotels. They're spending a lot of money to fly here. And if they hire us as guides, then they're also spending a lot of money for guiding and for transportation if necessary, right. etc. And then I wonder, you know, I take them to a village like Jisarazaka, and my intention, of course, is and, and perhaps intentions matter. My intention is to get them to see part of the beautiful cultural mosaic of Israel, to meet a community, to learn about their way of life, to connect people to people, right? All of what we've talked about is people to people, P2P, yeah. right? This is the goal. But isn't it, you know, doesn't it run the risk of being a little bit voyeuristic and a little bit like what they in India they, they take people on tours of slums. They call it poorism. Hmm. Not not tourism, poorism. Go see the poor people. It's a little bit dehumanizing. It can be. I'm not saying mm-hmm. that it is necessarily. Mm-hmm. I think the challenge for us is to think about how to not make it dehumanizing, how to not make it into a human zoo. Mm-hmm. Right? 
especially, you know, people who come in with their cameras and they're like, you know, hunting for images. They're like, chick, 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 chick. And they have the camera between them and, and, and the people in the place. How do you prevent that from becoming so yucky, in a sense? You understand what I mean? I, I think about this, and I and and I want to do cultural tourism, but I, I and what I know you, you do too. When, what do you feel when you when you see this image in front of you? And I remember now the film that you sent me, right? Mm, right. Yeah, what which we feel, need to talk about. Right. Yeah. What do you feel at the at the center of this when you see that? I also feel sadness, and I and I feel frustrated. I feel both of those things. I feel sad, and I feel frustrated that you know people are missing the point mm-hmm. you know that uh, they have this amazing opportunity to meet people you know I'll, I'll tell you for me when people talk about peace in the world or right. between israelis and palestinians people often talk about oh you know peace and they think that you know well we need to have a meeting between this leader and that leader and they should just sit down and reach an agreement and i think that's just bullshit Mm-hmm. Peace has to come from below, from people, meeting people, learning about each other, seeing our common humanity, our shared humanity. Mm-hmm. And only through that can we finally, you know, reach the compromises that are necessary to make peace. But if we don't do that, we'll never make peace. And so when I see, when I think about, you know, people going into communities, and um, just going in like, you know, this is going to be great. I'll sh- take some photos and then I'll show my friends that I was in this poor Arab village. It becomes a status symbol for them. You know, hey, I'm so cool. I went to, mm-hmm. you know, a poor place. But worse than that, by taking the photographs, they become the heroes of their own story. Right. So the photographs help them when they go back and they show their friends. They're, they took the photo. They control the message. It's about them again. It's about them again, yeah. They don't actually ever really meet locals. And, in, you know, in the, in, in the typical situation, you go to a village and they're eating. You know, we, we have a meal in the village. And so that's how you experience the culture. So, you know, the meal is wonderful and it's a good thing. It helps the local community. But is that really the culture of the place? You know, because they had stuffed grape leaves. You know, is that, is that what makes it? But that's the way Westerners often, you know, in the way that they consume goods, they consume culture. Mm-hmm. You know, and here they're consuming food, which is culture. It's the same thing, you know. And it's problematic. I think it's deeply problematic. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to discuss this with you. Yeah, you know, framing is everything. I mean, that's our role as a guide to bring this model of respect, model of Reminding the people that you are not the center of this world. You are only a passenger that's passing through. And when you are there, not only be mindful about the lady that's standing in front of you. Also remember seven generations before her and her daughter that is now translating her to your language. Mind the elder that is staying and now resting in the other room. So you can enjoy the meal. When you give people all those factors to be mindful about them at the same time that you are sending them with them, in my experience so far, people come a lot more mindful. They come with respect. 
they come as guests that were invited to the best possible, you know, a feast that's happening. Having said that, yes, it's problematic. Even the fact that I am, as an Israeli Jewish tour guide, entering their village, which is Muslim, and as you said, quite um, neglected of not only the Israeli society as a whole, but also within the Arab Israeli society, they like consider they're, they're to be double, yeah, yeah in the case twice. of Jisr, yeah. So they are used to be looking down at. We should point out that uh, that's because the uh, the Origin. inhabitants, the, or, the yeah, the people living in Jisr Zaka, their origins are actually in Egypt, mm-hmm. and as a result, they're not seen as local by the other Arab. Mm-hmm. Uh, communities in the Gal- in the you know coastal area and, mm-hmm. and in Israel in general, so that's why they kind of they're they're they're, they're doubly isolated in a right. sense. So no one wants to marry their wives and children, and not only Egypt. Some of them also came from Sudan. From Sudan, right? Some of them are are, are darker skin. We're, we're and talking so about a, a couple of you know. And you can see it. It's it in in the case of Jisr, it's it's horrifying if you think about it. You can really see in in Jisr that there's no exit ramp from right. the highway. Like they're they're completely isolated. Isolated. And just south of Jisr is is Caesarea. Caesarea. One Caesarea, of one of the richest places. And the prime minister's. The, the prime minister lives there, and they built an earthen ramp that right. separates between. So. They're isolated on, on so many levels. And so what what does it mean when we go there with tourists, right? And how do we do this? You know, breaking bread and eating a meal is wonderful. But at the end of the day, it's also a commercial transaction, right? Mm-hmm. We're paying them to host us, mm-hmm. in just, which is right. We should pay them. They're, they're providing us a service. But to what extent can we really connect mm-hmm. if it's really at the end of the day about the financial transaction. Yeah, but I'll tell you what, in that case, I see this as something that I would even say the word emissary uh, underlying this whole thing because once you enter a lady's house, mm-hmm. you give her the option to cook her food mm-hmm. and present it on her table, in her house. In her terms. In her terms. Mm-hmm. You, in that moment, gave her the respect and the eyes that gives her place in this world. And again, we go back to the sense of respect and giving respect to the ladies. Mm-hmm. I think we're now talking about a niche called social tourism as well. Mm-hmm. And one of the purpose, as I see it, in my in, in my set of goals, why do I choose to go to those places, is also in order to empower those ladies, mm-hmm. these people. Mm-hmm. A lot of the time when you travel in Israel, you hear about the Israeli-Jewish-Arab conflict. What a beautiful way would be to solve this conflict by giving respect and time within the itinerary, both to Jews and to Arabs. Mm-hmm. You give them um, an audience. As an actress, what you seek for the most is the audience. Without the audience, many times you have no one to talk to, mm-hmm. no one to show your talent to. So by sharing their narrative with those who come from abroad and cooking their meal in a way you pull them out from a situation in which they were kind of like clear people. people yeah, transparent. Be, transparent, thank you. Because yeah. I know about a specific lady that I like to go to in Jisr. She used to be a cleaner, someone that goes and cleans people's houses in Caesarea, the mm-hmm. next 
the you towns know, of the south. Right? Was she happy then? Maybe, I don't know. But I'm sure that by being able to, to host Americans to come to her house, there is some kind of an added value there. Yes, it's tricky. Yes, we have to do it with respect. respect. But one of the goals that I see in social tourism is not only about bridging these uh, messages and conveying them to the passengers, but also empowering the locals and showing them how beautiful they are mm-hmm. with all, all of their life circumstances as a whole and mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah, I community feel strongly people. that we need to empower communities Absolutely. and individuals. My concern, and, and I and I, again, I don't think that there, there are no answers to these things. Right. These are things that we need to, but I do think we, we need to be asking these questions. Okay? So that's why I bring this up. My concern is this notion of empowering women. That's a very Western, modern, um, not, it, it's not part of the discourse or narrative of the local, uh, you know, Traditions and so cultures. It's tricky. We always forget it because we and want to so fix it. Are we, are we messing with their culture when we're doing something like this? Because suddenly she may be earning more than her husband if this succeeds, right? Mm-hmm. What is that going to do to their, you know... The delicate fa- balance. To the, yes, and, and, and to their position in the village and to all these kinds of things. These are things, you know, whenever... And whatever you do in life, you're going to impact things. So you can't not do. You have to act. But I think we need to you know, be, try to be as aware as, as possible. And the question is, are we messing with their culture by doing this? You know, because it isn't a value. Like empowering women is not a value in most of the world's cultures throughout most of history. It's a very new thing if you think about it, mm. right? So what does that mean when we do that? I mean, we have some kind of role and responsibility, I think. But I don't know what it, you know, how to define it yet. I think it's something we need to yeah. think about. I think today the world is changing very fast, as you said, rapidly. Right. We can see that more women are in highest positions. Some of them are even leading some countries around the world. And we see women are entering all sorts of realms that uh, just uh, until long, not too long ago were closed realms for them. And I think following those massive changes around the world, of, of, of course, it absolutely affects those women that that uh, are located in those places that we want to reach to. So I think I see it, even now I'm considering what you just said, that, again, it's food for thought, something to think about. I think it, it goes along with the overall flow of the world today that goes to a place of more equalism between the two sides, the genders. I, I'm not sure if the pace we're taking it to is too fast, too slow, but you can see it again if we talk anthropology. This is something that's happening around the world in general. People are seeking to buy from the locals and to empower them, whether it's happening yeah. in the right way or not. That's a question. Well, I, I think what you what you raise is an important point, and and I, what I'm hearing from you, maybe tell me if I'm wrong, is also that, you know, there is, like when we think of traditional, the traditional is something that you know is in some ways frozen and nothing is frozen none of them live in a bubble the people who live in Jisr they go to they serve they, other countries they, they go, they go they, some of them travel abroad some of them you know they, they see life in Israel they watch TV it's layered they, they watch TV so they also they're not living in a bubble and I don't want to be perpetuating right 
I don't want to be perpetuating this trope, this kind of a um, like cliche almost of the disappearing native, you know, or the traditional. On the other hand, I also wonder, like, you know, sometimes you go to a village and they're very modern. They have cars, they dress in, you know, the women dress in jeans, uh, you know, they right. go to work in, they go out to work. And we're t- talking about the traditional culture. Why is that culture important if the people themselves are no longer living the traditional mm-hmm. culture? What's the legitimacy? Yeah, the how legit exactly. Even. How legitimate is that culture if they themselves are no longer doing, like, here's a good example. You're very interested in handicrafts. Very much so. And I want to talk about it. Let's, let's switch into talking about the handicrafts. Why are the handicrafts important? If the people who traditionally practice the handicraft no longer back, doing it. It goes back to respect. Because if you are not respecting what the hands of your mom and your grandma and your grand-grand-grandmother made, and today you rather buy something of plastic that costs $2. And made in China. Made in China. What do you support? What kind of a world you're bringing your kids into? What do you raise? Does it support the sustainability of this world? And that's another thing that's very important for me. Does it give those hands the respect they're supposed to get? And I'm not talking only about the ability to cook great food. That's recipes. And again, that goes back to tradition. It goes in the family. That's what gives the woman a place in her, in her own house. So what Craft, is your... it's like a, It's like a vivid memory of... of yeah, it's, it's just so big, I, I can't even express how important it is to track those women that are still with us and to teach the young ladies something that today they don't have the accessibility to and by remembering their hands, start to remember something that they don't remember in their mind, they start to look at their own moms in a different way. Mm-hmm. And that gives back, again, the respect. And that goes through the whole family journey. That's how I see it. Um, I think a world that's based on China, and we saw what what that can do when China starts... What you started. A world without diversity, I would say, maybe. Not, it has nothing so much with China, but with the fact that everything is being produced in one place yeah. and nowhere else. So again, we're talking about empowering, about local tourism, social tourism, and the idea is to bring the money back into the village. Bring the respect, bring the knowledge, bring the food back to where it belongs. Rather than raising generations over generations of feeling uh, poor under the circumstances of life, having to work in a place that you'll never be able to afford, mm-hmm. and having to feel like always constant uh, comparison of me, the poor, that no one wants to even get married with, mm-hmm. and they who live five seconds away from me yet, thousands miles away that 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 that's not that's not something i so, consider as sustainable so you're you have this new initiative this new project foot for thought you're taking advantage of this covid crisis in an excellent way and you know both of us you're taking advantage of it to to you know promote something to produce something which uh, i don't think we have an, enough of certainly very little of it in in tourism in israel so give me an idea of what would be an ideal day, if I come to you as a tourist and I say, well, I want to do something with you which is related to cultural or social tourism, what would be, how would, what, what would an ideal day look like 
uh, traveling with you uh, here in Israel? So, for example, let's just take this day around Jisra, right? Okay. What I said about Israel earlier is relevant to that day specifically that I'm going to present. Israel is all about diversity. It's a human mosaic. It's a traditional cultural mosaic. So let's imagine that you start the day off in Bethel, Bethel, uh, German community uh, visitor center. Bethel is a German community, a Christian German community that lives here in Israel. They came to Israel right after World War II, right after the Holocaust, and their life mission is about serving this Jewish nation in Israel to bring sustainability, not sustainability, to bring... Uh, Maybe you can explain better than me. Honestly, I don't know them as well as you do, but I know that and, and they're interested in, in, in bridging, you know, post-Holocaust, the relations between Jews and Christians. Yeah, and they do and this fi finance. Like, they, they uh, produce all sorts of... Uh, um, I'll say it in Hebrew, just, just for us to understand. I mean, it's... Masichot Abach. Oh yeah, like they, they do gas, they produce gas masks. Mm -hmm. They have a factory which produces gas which masks. Which is super successful all over the world, mm -hmm. right? They mm -hmm. make the best gems of the leftover fruits in the Golan Heights. Very, the very jam, successful. Yeah. Everything they touches turns into gold. But guess what? All of their incomes, they don't go for them to become very, very rich or for their, you know, uh, relatives on, 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 uh, on the other side. They see their life mission as bringing back the Jewish people what they should have gone to begin with. So all of their life mission is about Zionism, is about giving back to the Jewish people here in Zion, here in Israel. Mm -hmm. So that's a wonderful way to start the day. So you would start there. Yeah. And they're and in, they in Zichron Yaakov. Yeah, and they live in Zichron. They have actually a kibbutz, which is a social community living around one common truth. Which is Zionism in that concept? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And Where is their kibbutz located? Uh, it's not like a normal kibbutz, which mm. is based around farming, like the right. normal form of kibbutz. It's generated in Binyamina and in Zichron and a few of others living in some Moshevim around. Mm -hmm. So they chose this place because they believe that this is the best thing that they can do with their life today. How many people are we talking about? Just a, just a few hundreds, not uh -huh. many. The women who the woman who initiated it, her name was Emma Belger, and she came somewhere around the 1950s. Mm -hmm. And and again, uh, we're talking about a Yek German community that chose to shift all of her energy to here, to bring a contact to the post-traumatic world here in Israel, a second after the memory of the Holocaust starts to give its impact. So we would start there uh, yeah. with the Bethel community and Christian, yeah. the Christian community, and then where, where would you take and us? And then now? we can go, for example, to um, to Giselle. To Giselle, okay. And then we can see in one day, again, it's 10 minutes away, to see this Muslim poor community mm -hmm. that is living off the highway five minutes in your eyes, but 5,000 miles away from your consciousness and your ability to contain. Once you cross the bridge, you literally enter a different world. And by the way, Jisr today is the only Arab village that stayed along the coast, the Mediterranean coast. There is no other Arab village. Right, from along the coast of Israel, from, the, from Gaza all the way to Lebanon. There's really only Jisr, which is along the coast. And that's for historical reasons. Right. And 
unlike the Germans that are suffering from the pre-assumptions about them and the consequences of the Holocaust that are not enabling them to become citizens in Israel, they can only be residents in mm-hmm. Israel, the people living in, in, in Giselle are suffering from um, the consequences of their background and who they are and how they came about to, to, to be what they are today, like the poor village along the Israeli uh, coast. So visiting this place, having lunch there, maybe doing some embroidery or some kind of an arts and crafts workshop with one of the ladies, hearing their story, walking and seeing the beautiful beach, beautiful beach that they mm-hmm. share, and hearing a little bit about their tale, historical... Um, the archaeological site. Yeah, yeah, archaeological site, and relating it to uh, the story of the, of the Zani story, so the story of Giselle really started off with the Baron Rothschild. Baron Rothschild gave some of his money to this non-Jewish community. That was something that never was heard of before or after. And he actually gave them money and gave them land so they can shift their initial community from where they were, which was a swamp area, up to the hills where they are today. So we see Jewish money of the Zionist movement shifted into an Arab community. Mm-hmm. So I think just in those two spots, there's a lot to discuss. Right. Right? The third station, for example, on that day, can go and visit a reform Jewish a community. Reform? Jewish community mm-hmm. in Caesarea. The reform movement was mm-hmm. actually initiated off the traditional um, Jewish uh, world. And the idea was, let's not all live in shtetls and ghettos and let's not close ourselves in physical walls and mental walls let's make a reform and be like the western world it's very common in in north american communities it's it's much less common in israel but in caesarea there is a reform community and imagine sitting with a lady there doing a chanting doing some reading of uh the torah or uh, just singing some jewish songs together and talking about another community that maybe have a lot of money and feeling sense of stability in that way, but they are not necessarily feeling welcome and accepted by the overall Israeli society. So within just a few hours, we met such a very, very, very diverse group of people. One is Christian, German, Yex, post-traumatic in that sense. Then Gisela Zarka, Israeli society as well, but Arabs, Muslim, very, very different world, 10 minutes away. And then you drive off just a bit south from there and you meet Caesarea, you know, one of the, the most um, wealthiest towns in Israel. And you meet the Jewish reform movement. And this whole day just gives you a very, very good idea of what Israel is about. Mm-hmm. Maybe it doesn't represent the whole you know, well, it gives you a little sliver, a little window into the diversity of Israeli society. It also touches on three monotheistic religions. Um, I think, you know, what maybe people don't even realize is that there's so many other things going on. Like, you know, you could drive 20 minutes from there and you're in the Baha'i right. tradition. Or, or you drive, you know, another 20 minutes uh, from, from Zichron and you're with the Druze village. Absolutely. Uh, and so you have all, and just in this small corner, you know, the Carmel mountain area and coast, you have 
so much diversity, so much uh, interesting, so many interesting groups, and so it's not surprising that you could put together not only one day but many days of travel in Israel that focused on this kind of anthropological or ethnographic or cultural or social, whatever you want to call it, uh, type tourism. And I also want to add, thank you for that. I want to yeah. stem out of what you said. The other aspect of going to those places is not only talking to the passengers, to those who come to visit. To our guests. To, the, to our guests, right. Mm -hmm. But also to say in front of our hosters yeah. what the day is about and how Israel is beautiful in the sense that we are all part of this one planet, right? Mm -hmm. We're all making this story into one whole because then you can bring compassion to the Germans that are living here and they're still in post-traumatic episodes. Mm -hmm. You can bring compassion to this lady that now feels like her heart is open because, right, she mm -hmm. has her place. And then you can bring compassion by talking about the challenges that the reform movement is, is faced with and how much we, as people who come to visit them, respect their achievements, mm -hmm. their challenges, and understand that all those three communities that I just mentioned for this example have their own challenges, but we're all kind of part of the same changes, movement, massive. So, yeah. So, so it's about compassion, really. What I hear also from you is that you see tourism as uh, a force or a mechanism for change in this world. Uh, you see it as a way to initiate changes, uh, to build bridges, yes, um, all those kinds of things. And I think that's beautiful. I, 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 I think that tourism can be that. I think it should be that. Unfortunately, it's not always that. A lot of times, you know, both you and I have done the package tours on the buses. You know, we, we as tour guides, we have to make a living. And so that can be really challenging. How do, how, how do you navigate these two worlds, you know, um, working for a big tour operator, doing tour, tour bus? How does that, how do, you, how do you find your voice in that yeah. kind of situation? I'll be honest, and I'll say that for me, the corona really kind of gave me a reflection. In which I realized what I did before the corona cannot happen after the corona. Yes, I'll mm -hmm. do it for another year or two just to make a living. But in the long run, that's not why, that's not what I signed up for. I Remember see. we even said that one day right. when we met in the, in the dining hall. Like we both looked into each other in the eyes and we said, that's not what we signed up for. Because you knew what you're looking for, which mm -hmm. is this amazing world you're coming from, anthropology and mm -hmm. getting to know the other and really living with the other and building trust with the other and I know that for me tourism was about from day one to bring answers both for me and for my future guests to give respect and unfold this term called Israel versus Palestine to understand that it's not this or the other it's about sharing this concept and respecting each other and the only way to do it is by starting to listen and open your heart to the other and not just standing out and say this is mine this is mine we're not kids anymore. We're not, we don't have this privilege. The way I see it, for me, my tours are about bringing maturity and being um, willing to, to place the cards on the table and just, just open our heart. So really, that's, 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 that's where it's going. I'll do tourism for some time just to, to finalize my, my next steps. But 
that that is what really excites me bridging worlds together I think it's good you brought up you know this period now you know for many people you may not realize that uh, while the economy in Israel is beginning to open up for us as tour guides uh, it still hasn't opened up and it won't open up for a long time and so uh, we were in a very good situation we were like at a hundred percent and now we're down to zero percent for you how is this period this this uh, corona period how is that you know how's that affected you and also i'd I'd love to hear from you what do you think how do you think corona is going to affect tourism in the future when it starts coming back you know when do you think it'll come back and how do you think it's going to affect it will be just slowly build up to be what it was before or is it going to change tourism in some way in your in your mind okay those are two great questions yeah, big, uh, ones, yeah. big ones maybe we'll relate to each one at a time um, the first question what I realized and what I've done over this period was a to to connect to my vision and to to pure uh, my goals and my way to achieve those things so branding and finding the words that really convey those messages that sits very well in me but it took me some time to understand it and the way it is so yes this and our conversation I was part of it secondly I pretty much uh, felt my deep connection to arts and crafts and I put a lot of my time to just teach my my hands what they don't remember but they do already know um, and 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 relate to that slow later I'll call it slow tourism mm-hmm. movement in which you don't have to rush and do this checklist of a b c d right. e f and you're so tired that you don't even remember what you've done and, and by the third or fourth day and you just rush back home and then you have to you know need a vacation after your vacation yeah yeah I, by the way also my life were like that you know when you run from one group to the other to the you don't mm-hmm. even know what you've done and you have no one to share it with because no one can understand it mm-hmm. like going back from a trip abroad how would you explain about your visit to a village that no one ever saw like so for me it, it was about slowing down connecting to my genuine pace relating to what I really like which is working with the hands and not just working with the mind and also enlarging my clinic as a therapist being able to meet more people and, and uh, reaching out in other ways uh, so for me it was a bit a big shift uh, both career wise and passion wise so I think that that was the big thing for me understanding I want to do tourism that based on compassion on making change on bridge making and also enabling people that come from a western world to come and try out things in their hands so bringing also arts and crafts into this that was the first question and, and I want to say only that um, from my experience of being with tourists that though few times where we've actually gone into someone's living room and had a meal and discussed their tradition and their background and And their children um, those are the times that actually tourists loved and remembered and the most, could, the most. you could see their faces light up you know um, much more so than you know driving around to another you know checklist tourist site which you have to check off um, this was something that again and again when I saw it I thought you know this is really what people seek seek I mean that's what they're in a sense their hearts their souls seek it When, what I think they're seeking is real human connection with another human from another part of the world. 
right? That's what they're really trying. They want to they want to see that we can connect at the end of the day. And that's what we need to do when we when you talk about bridging. We're not just bridging cultures; we're bridging people here, right? We're, we're connecting people from two different places, mm-hmm. and that's what you know. And I think empowering, right? Rather than being a tour guide whose job is you know to guide, right? The, the, the it's word not guide, about me, right? As a guide, it's not about me. exactly, exactly. It's Rather about than connecting guiding, the dots, right? Connecting those dots, bringing people together. Being a facilitator in some ways, you know, to make things happen, to facilitate them, not as the guide, not as you know, an explorer or or a, a pathfinder, but as someone who's here to facilitate an experience. That I think is the type of tourism that I can embrace and 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 feel good about and feel like it's important in making a difference. You know why? Because yeah. that's where all your parts. And all of your life, you know, paths taking you to. Right. That's really who you are. That's really we, who we are as people. Right. We we want to we want we want to bridge this world. We're not here just to we learn history so we can, you know, give it to others so we can show them the big picture so they can sink into a conversation with the person, knowing a little bit more of who he is and being able to sit there with him. Mm-hmm. So for me, guiding is about giving the background and minding the people in front of me, both on the hoster side and the guest side, and making sure that they can see and be seen at the same time. And uh, again, I, I think this is, this is really what people are seeking for today as well. And that also takes me to the next question. I think right, that's the next We're, we're going to start wrapping up, so this is a good time for this mm-hmm. question about... Yes. Well, what do you think is going to happen to tourism you know, now after Corona? Yeah, I think it's going to take some time, but basically tourism today goes more and more and more to P2P, people to people, people love, people, PLP. I'm not sure about going back to all these, you know, cruises. And of course, it's going to happen for some time, but down the road, I see people looking for more of, smaller groups, something that can enable them to feel more more safe physically and mentally. And I think things would slow down more. I'm not quite sure how would that show itself. I'm not sure how long would it take. All I know is that for me, tourism is about bringing the change, building trust, building bridges, and using this platform to convey all those messages. I, I'm not sure about the rest because it's really going to unfold itself as we go. But one thing for sure, the corona episode, CV, 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 COVID. COVID-19, had changed this world from rushing into a very, very bad end, rushing into it, into something that slows down and starting to open our eyes and really embrace the world we're looking at. And one thing I'll say about my role as a guide also, I don't see myself as a passenger a passenger in, the, in this train, just letting things go down into the hall. No, I see myself as a messenger, someone that is willing to raise those difficult questions, to talk about those challenges, but also to bring compassion and to bring those wings of change and just 
starting from the people, because as we said, change is made by people. It doesn't carry only by uh, the, those who sit at the top. In fact, we see the world today is collapsing, and we see new initiate starts from the very you know basic levels, and and something new is is starting to build up from below, from yeah, from bottom up, from say. bottom up, which is how society always started, you know. It's time for us to understand we need a king and we need this and we need this, you know. Right. So I think we're living in very exciting times. And uh, in exciting times, uh, big changes happen. And within those big changes comes the big opportunities. And sometimes when things kind of like are uneven themselves, it's very important not to just fully um, kind of feel affiliated with it. And feel intimidated and, and go all the way uh, to the pessimistic side, rather to be able to just sit down, enjoy this uh, intermission, mm-hmm. look around, understand the changement, and also start to shift this ship so it would go to its better route. I think that's that's where it's going. And that's why I highly have this passion for this. I mean, it sounds like you're actually looking forward to you know what's going to show up in the future. You're actually looking forward to it in, in a way. Yeah. All this clash is simply for a better world to come up. Really. That's that's what I see. I think that's a great place to end with thoughts of a better world. And uh, I want to thank you again for joining me here for this uh, podcast and for our listeners once again. Foot for Thought. Uh, you can see Moria there. What is it? www.footforthought with an S at the end, Foot for Thoughts. Foot for Thoughts, excuse me. Foot for Thoughts with an S at the end, dot com. So I'll write it down in the notes below uh, so you can look into, uh, you can find out more about what Maria has to offer and a little bit more about her background and everything and you can see it all there at her site. It's a beautiful site. Thank you. And so I think we'll end it this. Thanks. Thank you so much. Okay, so how was that for you? Did you find it interesting? I felt like we could probably keep discussing and engaging with these issues for hours, but I also think that we touched on some of the more important aspects. One thing that I wanted to bring up that was never mentioned, but definitely informed this discussion, was Dennis O'Rourke's devastating 1988 documentary called Cannibal Tours. Back when I was still teaching anthropology at the university level, I made this required viewing for my students. The film, which is available on YouTube, follows a group of rich Western tourists as they cruise down the Sepik River in Papua New Guinea. It does an amazing job of drawing attention to the skewed power dynamics between the tourists and the locals who can't understand why these obviously rich people are haggling with them over a dollar. Sadly, it also shows how easy it is to exoticize and other people who are not from your culture. I tend to agree with Mark Twain, who famously said that travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. And I really do believe that tourism can act as a bridge between cultures. That said, I wholly agree with Moria that proper framing is absolutely essential for this to succeed. I believe that many of my fellow tour guides do a great job of framing 
and thinking about these topics, but it is not something that I recall was ever discussed during my two and a half years of tour guide training. Hopefully, our little conversation will help spark a wider discussion on this topic. So let's see, what else? Please check out the podcast webpage, tourguideconfidential.com, one word, or the Facebook page, tourguideconfidential, three words, for upcoming events and episodes. For example, on Sunday, July 5th at 7 p.m. Israel time, or 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time in the U.S., I am giving my trademark lecture live by Zoom. The lecture will present the 1581 Cloverleaf map and explore how it is, in my opinion, an important key to better understanding Israel and the Middle East. The event is donation-based, and there is a $1 minimum fee to join. You can find a link to the talk on the Tour Guide Confidential podcast website under events. Since there are still no incoming tourism flights these days, this is one way that us tour guides can make some money until the borders reopen again. Please consider signing up for the lecture and share the link with anyone who might be interested in better understanding this complicated corner of the world. As they say, sharing is caring. No worries if you can't make it to this lecture, as I have several more lined up. In fact, the next one will be a virtual tour of my hometown of Haifa. On Sunday, July 19, 7 p.m. Israel time and 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Last, but definitely not least, next week's episode is with the brilliant and charming Miriam Nedra-Kadush. Miriam is a veritable polyglot who is licensed to guide in no fewer than five languages, and she brings years of experience in guiding groups from all over the world. She will share with us about her fascinating upbringing and how she ended up tour guiding, and we will discuss crucial topics such as guiding the Arab-Israeli conflict and what it is like to guide across so many varied cultures. Subscribe now to the podcast so that you don't miss this exciting episode as soon as it comes out. I look forward to seeing you all next week. Until then, Shalom and Salam from Haifa, Israel.